You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arnie Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is someone who probably most uh, viewers recognize, and viewers and listeners, and that is Dan Kaufman, but I'll ask him to introduce himself anyway. Uh, Dan, could you please introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Dan Kaufman. I'm a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University. I host the Sophia program on Meaning of Life TV, and I also publish an online magazine called The Electric Agora. Uh, so thanks for coming on today, Dan. So we're going to be talking about a piece that you published at The Electric Agora a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's called Adolescent Politics. Uh, we will link to it below. Um, what what spurred you to want to write this and, and publish it on your site? Um, well... I, you know, we're now living in very heated political times, <laughs> and I just find myself in so many of the conversations I get with people, a, not just just not caring about it as much as they do, and b, wondering a little bit about why they care so much about it, and so then I started. I thought of doing something sort of like a personal meditation on my own sort of political journey, which has involved a lot of back and forth between left and right um, to where I've now centered, centered into a settled into a kind of a center. Um, but it's not so much because of an ideological centering as it is more a kind of a, I would call political quietism. Mm -hmm. um, um, and um, so I wanted to sort of, I was sort of interested in why that was. So I wanted to sort of explore my own political uh, uh, disinterest to a certain extent. And um, I also thought that there probably was likely a generational aspect to it. And since you and I have talked about generational issues before with respect to politics and culture, that's why I, I approached you with it, thinking that you might be interested in it. Um, and um, and uh, and it also reminded me of a lot of things that Joan Didion had written that had that had resonated with me a lot that also expressed a kind of ambivalence about politics. And so, um, but it really started off as a personal meditation inspired by the fact that I just keep finding myself having these conversations with people who are just incredibly politically hot and a not feeling it myself and sort of being wondering why they feel it so much. I sort of tend to reserve that kind of emotional intensity really for my personal relationships uh, and not for uh, issues, so to speak. I'm not saying that there are no issues I don't get sort of heated up about, but um, for the most part, I tend to reserve that kind of um, emotional intensity uh, for the most part for personal issues. And the political issues which I do tend to get emotionally very intense about are ones that have a very personal resonance. So, you know, you once moderated a dialogue I did on, on Israel and mm -hmm. on politics swirling around that. Now, that's one that I will get kind of hot about. And it's, but it's, it's entirely because I have such an intimate personal connection to, uh, to it. And I thought that there was something to explore in that, that, that whole range of issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's it's um, kind of a yeah a personal essay um, charting uh, parts of your life's path. Um, it includes if if people aren't convinced yet that they want to read it, it includes a photo of you from your Miami Vice days uh, in your twenties. Uh, uh, no, no, that was when I was seven, sixteen years old. Oh, that okay. Was, well, you were... that was in high school. Oh wow. Okay, so you were oh. you were yeah you were much more mature than I than I thought. Okay, so. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so you're you know you're wearing the the Don Johnson kind of kind of outfit, which is which is funny to see, and um and then talk about your time at at college and afterward in graduate school and then um, 
working as a professor. Uh, so, but weaving in, you know, these, the, the way that your milieu and other people around you kind of affected your politics. And yeah, and you bring in Diddy and it's interesting. I just thought of this now that, you know, in our previous conversation, you talked about how um, Generation X you felt was uh, you know, kind of spiritually connected to the silent generation. And um, she is uh, one of the, you know, silent generation um, thinkers <laughs> that, that still retains a lot of prominence. Um, whereas the uh, millennial, which I, which I am an older millennial, are kind of linked to the boomers. And sometimes it's just because these people are our parents. Uh, but also there seems like there's kind of a back and forth, like cycles of history thing where, yeah. um, you know, uh, people people's views sort of switch, react to what's like, the you know, the going too far from the previous generation and then they they like go too far themselves <laughs> and then the next generation comes around and reacts to it um but let's so let's start with so some terms that so you use the term wokeness i think you use political correctness and if you don't i kind of felt like you were talking about political correctness through some of the um through some of it and you bring up these kind of flashpoint cultural things that have happened over the last year or so and uh, you know, the, uh, comedian, uh, Hannah Gadsby, get, get, uh, has this Netflix special that is like a, a weirdly, like half comic stand up, half performance art, spoken word monologue about, uh, in which she kind of tries to, like, undermine, like, all of comedy whatsoever. And this was like, uh, a lot of people really like this. And to these more kind of weird things, like the Gillette commercial, um, recently, where it seemed to be criticizing, you know, like, uh, toxic masculinity or something, and this uh, unusual statement by, uh, the actor Liam Neeson that, on his recent press tour for his new action movie, where he, for some reason, he said that he had once, um, a friend of his was either, was, like, assaulted or raped by a, a black man, and so he, like, was so angry that he was, like, prowling the streets looking for a random black man with, to... With, like, a blackjack or something, I think he said. Yeah, right? to, to, you know, to assault himself and get revenge, and God knows why he decided to say this in public, but, and, and people, you know, were up in arms about this. A very strange story to, uh, to tell like a celebrity interviewer. Well, didn't he, didn't he say it in, in light, it, wasn't he like, wasn't, I think he was, um, he's, he was promoting a revenge flick. Yeah, almost and, all of his movies are, yeah, that's his, his genre. So, is so like, the, I think some people who were cynical about his motives thought that it was a ham-fisted effort to kind of promote the revenge flick that kind of backfired on him. Um, I, that's very possible that it was cynical in the in the in the essay I kind of assumed that 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 he was that he was being legit um, um, and um, and I also mentioned the American Psychological Association's really weird uh, guidelines that they re- that they released not too long ago about about um, about uh, uh, how to how to do psychotherapy for males and um, I guess I just saw in all of it, a kind of weird politicization of everything in a way that I thought think strikes me as maybe characteristic of the times now and, um, and on you and maybe unusual and also sort of representing maybe a reason why we should be a lot less political. Um, I mean, because one of the things I do argue in the, in the essay is that, a lot of our political instincts are essentially expressions of the adolescent id, so to speak, and um, um, and that we're seeing it very clearly now um, in these sorts of performances because they strike me. You know, the word the word that people use is virtue signaling, which strikes me as kind of unspecific and not all that useful, but it really does look a lot to me like 
the kinds of performances that adolescents engage in when they're trying to um, affirm and strengthen the position within their clique. Um, and it's done partly by by sort of signaling to the clique. And it's also done partly by, you know, dumping on and kicking the crap out of the people that are outside of the clique. And so um, and so I just sort of listed all those examples at the beginning as, as examples of what I thought were evidence that our politics was very sort of nakedly adolescent now in a way that maybe before – maybe it always had been, but in before at least had been kind of sublimated. Um, 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 you know, one of the things I started off with, I mean, you know, notoriously Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill were obviously on completely opposite sides of the political spectrum – um, but it was notorious that they were that they were able to get along in, in, in a civilized sort of way, and um, and we can remember sort of examples of of politicians like Orrin Hatch and Ted Kennedy again very far on opposite sides of, of issues being able to work together on on, on legislation. It's almost impossible to imagine that kind of uh, working like that kind of uh, politics now, and that's also part of the. I, it's almost to me like politics used to be grown up. And now it's become adolescent. Um, and maybe it was always adolescent, but at least people pretended to be grownups. Um, and now it seems to me like they're not even, they're not even pretending, but maybe that's just all confused. But that's what I was, that's what I was sort of thinking when I sort of was writing this. Mm-hmm. And I used my own personal story. I kind of admitted that my own politics is kind of adolescent, um, in that it's not really very committed. It's just sort of, if you go through my history, you'll sort of see my politics whoever, is, is really basically t- defined by whoever I couldn't stand at the moment, right? <laughs> so, okay, so you have like reactionary in like the dictionary sense of the term politics. Of- I guess so, yeah. But I, I guess I kind of think it's all like that now almost. Um, um, and then maybe I'm just sort of saying, hey, we should just all admit this and maybe just step back a little. Yeah, uh, yeah, there's a lot here. Um, so... I think so. Some of the examples you bring up, I think, are you know, play in different realms. So, like the uh, the American Psychological Association's handbook or whatever. Like, this is important. It could affect real people's lives if their treatment changes in some way. Um, this is something that's you know worth arguing about. I have like no idea what the proper answer to this sort of thing is, but like this is like a proper area of, of contestation. Um, some of the other things are more like you know. Um, we this would only blow up in because we have the internet and social media. So like the which I also talk about, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you bring it up. I mean, that that yeah. does seem to be one of the underlying like handful of factors that you can point to as like a hinge point. Um, so you know, Liam Neeson says something strange. Uh, if this had happened twenty years ago, maybe like an entertainment show would have reported it, but like they wouldn't have gotten a lot of feedback from people. They wouldn't have known that this activated people's anger and excitement. And so they would have moved on to like the next thing the next day. Um, because everyone can react instantly. Uh, everyone can chime in and say, you know, Liam Neeson, what the fuck are you talking about? Um, I don't know. Like, I don't think Liam Neeson got like canceled. Like, uh, uh, in the way some. No, he people... seems to have survived this one. I, I can't tell exactly why. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just luck. Yeah, I don't. Probably each case like depends on like strange circumstances. Um, you know, like, did he have, like, a unknown history of being racist and, like, racist comments that weren't repeated previously? Like, that's kind of, that'd be, like, the analog to the Harvey Weinstein thing where suddenly, you know, every woman who had experienced this was, was coming forward with a, a string of, like, habitual behaviors. Um, so that didn't seem to happen. And then, like, you know, there's always something else 24 hours later, some new thing to grab people's t- attention. And I'm sure Liam Neeson has, like, 
a dozen more movies where he rescues his stepdaughter or whatever all those right. movies are about um, in him before he retires. And yeah, I think he, he was kind of generally seen as a like liked person and you know, he played Oscar Schindler. Um, so yeah, so that, all that helped him. And then, yeah, so these, all these things get kind of like fought out in the world of social media. Uh, and I think that world also has a hard time distinguishing between what things are important and what things aren't important. Um, and yeah, everything is, I mean, that's, that's part of like the weirdness of Twitter, for instance, is that everything has to fit within 280 characters. Some things can include a video or an image or a link, but, um, usually there's like a flatness to it. So someone saying that they, um, you know, people don't usually tweet about their lunch that much anymore. That was like the original purpose of Twitter was to tweet about what you're having for lunch, but something where they're like, Oh, just go home from work. I'm really tired. That's like right next to the thing that's saying like, the worst, you know, injustice in human history just happened. And, the, and it, <laughs> right. it's, it just like pushes everything to be on the same plane and makes it hard to. I guess, I guess the use of the platform kind of switched. It was, it was during like the Arab Spring and stuff in Iran, right? That's when, when, when people started seeing the non superficial potential of the platform, right? Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, you know, the reason I, I, I'm not, I, you're absolutely right. I, I did not mean to suggest that all the examples that I listed were all sort of of equal sort of significance or weight. It was more that I was trying to say that every sector of life has now been politicized in this way and it has been politicized in a way that 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 reveals how juvenile our political sort of dispositions are is, is what I was sort of – you know, in the Hannah Gasby thing, I mean I just – you know – it wasn't just the Nanette itself. It, was, it wasn't just the idea that somehow the fact that there's injustice in the world is a reason why nobody should do comedy anymore, which is essentially what she was saying, as if there was an injustice 50 years ago when Richard Pryor was doing comedy or when Lenny Bruce was doing comedy when there was actually way more injustice than there is now. So that already is kind of juvenile and stupid, right? I mean, I mean just on its face. But also just that um, – the, you know, it wasn't just the the Nanette the, the Nanette thing itself, but then the sort of the Misandra's rant that she went on at this awards thing that she was at, um, where she basically just sort of you know just uh, you know uh, uh, accused you know 150 million people whom she doesn't know of all being sort of you know uh, mis- misogynistic potential rapists, and I thought to myself, you know, this is exactly how a fourteen-year-old thinks, right? I mean, this is exactly how a fourteen-year-old thinks and how a fourteen-year-old talks, and um, and I couldn't imagine a comedian from from earlier generations being that juvenile, right? I mean, I just, I mean, I mean, I could imagine them being juvenile in a different way, right? Um, I mean, because certainly a lot of Eddie Murphy's humor is juvenile, but I couldn't imagine them being so unself-aware and sort of so, so juvenile in this kind of meta way. And I guess that and the Gillette, I just got this, 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 this terrible, this, this image of, of just how teenagers behave, but now it's corporate CEOs and heads of major professional organizations and and all of that and that's sort of what struck me and started making me think well you know isn't that what everybody's politics is basically like and 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 maybe it's just that now it's all becoming sort of transparent and i do think and and at least in the in the essay i speculate that the reason it's becoming so transparent is what you said and it's social media right i mean it, it's 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 the that in, in the sense i said i think i said in the essay that social media has turned every context into a high school cafeteria 
and the whole and the, where everybody knows in every context that they are being watched by all of their peers, right? Um, um, and so they're kind of performing all the time in a way that that, like you said in the past, they wouldn't have had to because the context they were in were not context in which everybody was watching them all the time. Um, um, so. Yeah, and and just on the Gillette ad, um, I had a conversation when after that came out with a guy who um, is a brand consultant, and we'll we'll link to that below. But one of the a what consultant? A brand consultant. He worked. Brand, you know, he works okay, as like an advertising yeah. agency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he well, it's interesting. You know, we talked about how uh, was this disingenuous or not, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, the the original ad was a YouTube video that was like a minute long. Um, you know, most, if you watch TV, an ad is 30 seconds or 60 seconds. So I have no idea if, if the Gillette ad even ran on actual TV or if it was only online. So maybe they had, they edited down a 30 second version. It couldn't but, have run on TV given how long the, the full one is, right? Exactly. So yeah, they couldn't have, so it would only run full on TV if like CNN aired it to, to like, to talk about it immediately after. So, um, yeah, and 20 years ago, if there was a commercial that, was controversial in any way you could talk about it with your friends um i guess like pre-social media you could talk about it, about it like on online message boards or chat rooms or something but like there's no way that a kind of like groundswell at least an appearance of people arguing about it uh would happen and yeah it pro- and it probably would have like faded away like like most things do although now in the um I mean, now things fade away because there's always some new outrage uh, the next day. <laughs> and 20 years ago, it would just be like, well, normal life proceeds on. And, you know, the, yeah. the New York Times is not doing a story on this ad every single day. Um, so, yeah, I, I so I, I'll have to um, check out that. I, I wasn't crazy about Nanette um, when I saw it. I thought it was uh, the original, the first half was funny. The second half was like, I don't know, it just didn't work for me. So I haven't like followed the subsequent Hannah Gadsby uh, stuff, but oh, so you didn't watch that 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 award show where she no, spent no, like twenty five minutes berating men? No, I haven't watched that. Um, yeah. but I, I, as I recall, she was kind of like in in the net. She was kind of like announcing her retirement in a way from comedy because it didn't work for her anymore, and was like suggesting like comedy comedy must change. And then there was some think pieces, and you know, saying like Hannah Gatsby is right, comedy must change. But like comedy didn't change. Like like you know, the stand ups are still performing all over the country every night, and comedy specials are still being recorded. So, you know, it was one idiosyncratic person making this argument. <laughs> it hasn't exactly... Well, it's, a little, it's a little more than one, though, don't you think? I mean, there is a lot... Unless you think this is just way overblown, which, fair enough, it might be. But there is a lot of no-platforming of comics going on. Um, I mean, there is one guy who was literally yanked off the stage at Columbia in the middle of his routine um, um, because he made some joke about black and gay people or something and and he himself is is indian or pakistani or something mm-hmm. um i mean there is at least from some quarters a sort of push that comedy should change and that comedy should that we should only have woke comedy now right i mean i mean i'm not saying that it's working but there is at least a, a kind of a push from some quarters for that don't you think yeah yeah i think so i don't know how it's working out you see i mean you see <laughs> you see things um, especially around like performing at camp, like on campuses, like you could see why that would be, um, more, you know, <laughs> something that would spark po- possibly more controversy than the standard performing in, in a club or an auditorium. Um, and there's also the stuff about the, some of the people who, uh, had their past behavior brought to light during the, because of the Me Too movement, Louis C.K. and, um, uh, the other guy's name just popped out of my head, uh, from Parks and Rec. Um, 
he Aziz Ansari. Uh, yes, Aziz Ansari. Yeah, um, you know, yeah. they've kind of started quietly like working again, and uh, it's kind of like, did they? You know, <laughs> are they? Have they learned anything? Does it matter if they've learned anything? Um, does like should they like should they have a platform at all? I, I, I these, these things I think are pretty complicated. Like Louis C.K. will have a platform as long as venue owners think it's in their interest to book Louis C.K. because he'll sell tickets. Um, yeah. And then maybe some people will protest outside a uh, Louis C.K. show, but you know the protesters will be dwarfed by the people in the audience. Yeah, but don't like you think? I mean, in, I mean, I guess we could do an entirely separate show on comedy. But I always thought that comics were like supposed to be bad people. I mean, I mean, <laughs> I, I almost, I almost thought of comedy as a way, as sort of one of the few ways that bad people can actually really be of use to everyone, right? I mean, um, you, you know what I'm saying? In other words. I guess I don't think it really matters what what you Louis C.K. did as as long as he's a good comic, right? I mean, I mean, um, you know, he's not he's not a Boy Scout troop leader. I mean, you know right. what I mean? I, I guess I guess you know, obviously, if you do something criminal, you go to prison, right? And then you can't you can't be a comic. I guess you could be a comic in prison, but <laughs> I guess I just never quite understood why one had to be sort of morally upstanding to be able to be allowed to be a comic. I mean, wasn't Richard Pryor like doing a bunch of cocaine and, 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 and you know, you know what I'm saying? Didn't, I mean, didn't I, he famously, didn't Pryor, didn't Pryor famously um, light himself on fire when he was free basing cocaine? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, so not a, not a moral exemplar. Yeah. I find that an odd standard, but you know, I guess we, I mean, we probably shouldn't talk about comedy too long, but I, I didn't understand Hannah Gadsby's whole thing. I didn't understand what the fact that there was tragedy in the world. That to me is the reason why you need comedy, right? I mean, as a matter of fact, the worse the worse things are, the more you need it. It seems to me. And this idea, I don't know. It just struck me as a kind of moral posturing that that again struck me as how a fourteen year old acts. Um, not to keep coming back to the theme, but I mean, that really was the theme of my essay. Was that really politics is simply us acting out our inner fourteen year old? And that in the past, maybe it's been mass because the spaces in which politics were exercised were adult spaces. But now, in a sense, we're turning all the adult spaces into adolescent spaces because of the fuck social media is, is been, has invaded all of them, right? Um, and, um, and I don't know, you know, with social media in the boardroom, I mean, I don't know how that's not, you know what I mean? And, and, and our president, his primary mode of communication is through social media. And so um, I guess the question is whether you agree that that politics is inherently an expression of our adolescent ids, right? Um, and that the reason that it's so much worse now is simply because social media has made it transparent or whether you really do think there's a kind of principled politics that, that a lot of people you – know, that, that people at least in principle could pursue. Um, well, yeah, I think it – what – you know, the, most people don't – know a lot about politics or think a lot about politics because they have a lot of other stuff going on in their lives. Um, and maybe they follow the news vaguely, um, but they are not like looking at Twitter for political updates. Like, this. so once, once you're, if, if you're like looking at Twitter for political stuff, you're already like in, I don't know, the top five or 10% in terms of engagement right. and you are not representative of the average American. Um, I've, I've referenced this piece many times on the show before, but um, Chris Hayes, before he was famous, wrote a piece uh, about canvassing uh, for John Kerry in 2004 among uh, undecided voters. And it was about 
how his view of what Americans think about politics totally changed because people just didn't know anything. They held contradictory contradictory beliefs. I remember the one thing that stood out was that he met a, you know he just met a woman at, at the door who said, uh, "There's no way I can um, vote for John Kerry because you can never trust a lawyer." Um, so that was like her political position was that you can't trust the lawyer. Not vote. Not I'm going to vote for George W. Bush. So yeah, it's people have strange idiosyncratic beliefs, and uh, most people don't participate in politics beyond voting or like scanning the headlines uh, once in a while. Uh, so then you have like the super fans <laughs> of politics who are fighting each other. So yeah, it is like I agree. There, there's definitely the adolescent aspect has been you know social media either exposes it or encourages it, creates it. Um, you have people yell, you know, you have people yelling at each other online in a way they wouldn't if they were face to face. You have uh, people ganging up and tribalism and social media encourages tribalism because it wants to show you things that get a lot of engagement. Um, and the things that get the, lot, the most engagement are things that make us angry. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's taking uh, human impulses that, aren't very virtuous and reinforcing them for commercial gain. So that's, that's bad. And hopefully we can figure out ways as a society to, uh, to combat that. And it might be shutting down some of these social media networks or, or like the government t- uh, taking them over um, because they're just like uh, too damaging and too, too powerful for one company to control uh, so much uh, of our online uh, lives. So yeah, so I think there's a, there's a lot there. Um, and then I just, I, there is just this, the thing about the thought that never would have been immortalized if it weren't for the ability to do it on social media and someone saying something that they didn't really think about or saying, yes, I agree. Uh, 25 years ago, there would have been, you know, you would have said it in your head or to your family members and, and that would have been it. Um, so that makes it more like the, you know, the, space between what goes on in your head and what comes out of your mouth is, or your fingers type out has gotten even shorter. And uh, yeah, so that's more like the adolescent id, the thing, yeah. <laughs> the thing that we're supposed to, yeah. as we grow up, we're supposed to bury deeper and deeper. And is it just a coincidence or not that the most, uh, the president with the greatest adolescent id in human history is Donald Trump, um, our current president. Like, yeah, I think he's actually a perfect example. I mean, you know, you asked me, when we were chatting before we started, why I didn't mention Trump, and I told you there was no reason premeditated. It's because I wrote the essay as a personal meditation, and I just really don't think about Trump very much. But if you ask me, uh, I will tell you that I think Trump is sort of, a, I think, could be exhibit A for what I'm talking about, and that I actually don't think Trump has any actual ideology at all. I, and I don't, I don't think he actually really means any of it. Um, he is completely an adolescent playing to his clique and doing so by, you know, signaling to them constantly while at the same time kicking the shit out of the people who are outside of it. And, um, um, and for him, the whole world is a, is a, is a, is a, is a high school cafeteria. And, um, and I just think that that's so demonstrable by looking at him. I, I've never ever seen the man say or do anything that struck me as even appearing to be principled. Um, um, and, um, and, uh, you know, I guess what I'm just sort of wondering is, is this sort of, you know, have I stumbled upon the true essence of political commit, of, you know, political activity or whether this started at some points? I mean, one of the things in the essay that I do that I use my own history for, because now I'm 
freaking old. <laughs> and my history now is 50 years. Um, but, you know, back in the mid-1980s, I talked about my experience of political activism at the University of Michigan. And I was actually surprised to find that it was well documented online, these shanty wars that I talk about. Um, there were actually articles written about them. John, apparently, Jonathan Chait was at Michigan just a year or two after me. Um, and or he was like a year or two behind me. And he, he, um, he uh, has an article about this. And so just for people who have, you know, have, obviously I haven't read the essay yet. Um, the, when I was at Michigan, it was the time when a lot of the anti-apartheid protests were happening. And so an anti-apartheid group decided to protest by building a model shanty in the middle of the school's quad. Um, now, once that happened, then a Palestinian group said, well, you know, that's a good idea. So they built a shanty on the quad to protest Israel's occupation of the territories. Well, then a pro-Israel group said, well, if you're going to have a shanty. So they built a model of a blown up bus, right, to protest Palestinian. And within like a month, the quad looked like a fucking slum. Okay, I mean, it looked like a fucking slum. And this, to me at the time, just sort of reminded me, you know, I was like I say in the essay, I, I have been, I've had inklings all my life that politics is basically an expression of the adolescent id um, because I sort of recognized it in myself. And this sort of reminded me of that. And what was so fascinating was I had not read the trade piece before. I started writing the essay. I found the Chait piece. Right writing, and Chait essentially said exactly the same thing. What he said was in the essay, he said, look, it's a shame that the activism that these students decided to engage in is clearly not an activism directed towards the issues that they're active, activisting about, but are entirely – about social positioning within the university within the university community that that's clearly what this was all about one upping each other and so i i felt sort of confirmed that okay well this adolescent id theory at least goes back to the 1980s <laughs> whether or not you could say it's forever i don't know partly because the whole idea of adolescence is really uh, is really a property of the industrial era mm -hmm. but maybe it's a property of politics since the second world war maybe it's a property of politics at least since the counterculture i'm not sure um, um and i don't make an effort in the essay to make a really rigorous argument for it I, like i said i try to illustrate it through a personal narrative but i don't know if you have feelings or thoughts about this um, about whether you think there really is such a thing as a principled politics still um, or whether you think there never was. or You know what I mean? I, I'm not sure myself. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was interesting. And I, I maybe I didn't know about that, <laughs> the 1980s. The Michigan, shanty wars? Shanty wars. But, I, but there was at least something that was vaguely like that when I was in, when I was in college, but I can't even remember what, the, what they were building their little thing for. Where, where were you? You were at Yale, right? Yeah, Yale. Yeah, um, yeah so, you know, it's like, what can you do as an average person to like help some political cause you believe in? And also like, where does that, the belief in your political, political cause come from? So, you know, the like freedom riders in the fifties and sixties, like would go down and put their like lives on the line and go like directly yeah, and trying yeah. to register. Freedom summer students went down to Mississippi to register black people and got lynched. Right. Right. Um, um, that to me, I would say, okay, 
that's pretty principled activism, right? <laughs> right. So then, like, like okay, well, so yeah, so that was like you know an, an amazing moment in American like social history and uh, effective protest tactic, and uh, multiple people were murdered because of it. Um, but you know, a college student could just like take a bus or drive down to the south from the American North. Uh, you can't, you know, in the 1980s, you had to take a uh, plane or a boat to South Africa, uh, as you do yeah. now as well, and that would be expensive and, you know, much more and disruptive to your life to take a couple weeks off. And what would you do once you're in South Africa? I mean, the the, the protest movement, was that, as I understand it, since I was too young to experience it, was about uh, divestment from, like, uh, like state-controlled South African industries from, like, uh, you know, university um, endowments yep. and stuff like that. Yeah. So there, yeah. there's, like, a Certainly link there. part of it, yeah. Yeah, so there's like a link there, and then like the you know the Palestinian students glommed on when there probably what those <laughs> was probably less investment in Israeli um, you know industries, although there may have been some. And then the uh, Zionist students <laughs> made their their statement as well. So it just kind of became more and more like circus like from something that started off having you know you it's, they were basically making like a sit in originally. And I guess I guess I don't see how building a shanty in the middle of the quad is going to make the university divest. I mean, if you ask me what the equivalent would be to something like what the what the what the Freedom Summer uh, students would do, it would be something like spending your summer in D.C. You know, doing free uh, doing free volunteering for organizations that are lobbying Congress and other. You know, in, in other words, it just seemed like such an obvious sort of social jockeying sort of thing. Um, you know, I could be wrong about this. You know, it's, we're guessing motives, right? I mean, which is a difficult thing to do and probably not, not wise if you, to do it too seriously. But um, I guess maybe what I want to say is I think an awful lot of politics is like this and maybe more than we, when, than we'd like to think. Um, and I guess the two solutions then are either to try to make the politics better, which then gets to sort of trying to, motivate people to act from their better natures or just to have less politics. And I guess that I sort of err on the side of less politics, just politicizing everything less and really sort of saving it for the really big stuff. And, and yeah, and, uh, yeah. I don't think we're going to like uh, improve the moral quality of, of Americans like anytime soon. Um, and it's, we're, <laughs> if we could, you know, we're heading in the opposite direction, it seems like, um, yeah, so, I so, so just yeah. keeping things level is is probably hard enough without improving it. Um, and yeah, but I I don't. It would be good if things were depoliticized, but I mean, part of it is the technological, um, you know, the changes in technology in the past twenty five years. And um, I, I can't you mean, remember. You mean the social media? Social media, YouTube. Um, uh, you know, handheld cameras. Um, I mean, I, I think you at, at some point you wrote about that confrontation that took place at Yale between a student and the like housemaster about uh, Halloween costumes, yeah. um, which people will probably remember from a couple of years ago. So, like, if the that Christakis, I think their yes. name was. So, yeah. if that had happened when uh, I was at Yale, um, it would. Oh, not you been... were there when that? No, happened? no, no, no. Uh, that I was class of two thousand five, and this must have happened like 2015, 2014. But I'm saying if like this had happened when I was a student. Maybe the Yale Daily News would have written about it the next day, but there was no, there would have been no video because no one had a camera in their pocket. So right. it would have just passed on. It was like the video that was, that went viral and enabled everyone to 
uh, in the world to see it and sound off about it and the conversation to go on and on and on. So now everyone has a video camera in their pocket and can, if they, you know, very easily learn how to upload something instantaneously. Um, this is good in some ways, like the Arab Spring showed that you could document, uh, government, you know, government abuse uh, very easily. But, uh, this stupid event with the, uh, Catholic school students and the Native American activists also showed that, like, like none of that would have happened had people not. Yeah, and, and nothing. I, I tr- mostly ignore that story since it seems so stupid all through, but I, I don't think anything was like learned or gained by anyone at all from that entire episode. Um, I agree with you. So, so yeah, that wouldn't have, that couldn't have happened 15 years ago. So I don't know. You can't put that genie back in the box. I don't think unless people really start to get sick of their phones and decide that they don't want to be carrying around these little like potential su- surveillance devices. Uh, you know, where they, where they are getting surveilled by the government and the uh, phone company, and they can possibly take photos and video of other people. Like, if you, unless people... so, you think you think the you think you think that the question of whether it's better to fight for better politics or for less politics, you think it doesn't even arise because we're kind of swimming in all this social media provided information, and that. Until that's no longer the case, there actually is no remedy, uh, is, is what you sounds to me like you're saying. It sounds to me like you're you're very pessimistic about. Yeah, I guess I would be, and I'm more, I'm like going from like material conditions and saying like how are people going to react react to them, and you know the t- technology exists and everyone has it. So what's going to happen? So maybe the technology has to change, or our views toward the technology has to change. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't think we're all going to get better, and I don't know how we kind of like make an effort to take politics out like what is i don't even know what like concrete like people could just get off social media entirely um i don't know what it, but like they're yeah and i don't even do know that. you mentioned earlier the idea of maybe that eventually social media will become like a public utility um but i don't even see how that how does that help you know what i mean i mean you know what i'm saying in other words well, then the only it, thing it would help least, is if people didn't use it for that purpose. Right. Well, at least you could uh, you could imagine that. Let's say the government took over Facebook. Um, they would change the algorithm so that it is not, they no longer want you to use Facebook as much as possible, which is what Facebook wants you to do. Um, I read oh, I, I read an interesting uh, little fact uh, somewhere recently, which is uh, people uh, Facebook the Facebook engineers realized that something. Uh, a piece of content that is very engaging for everyone is a photograph of your ex boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, uh, looking happy. Um, and people, people really spend a lot of time looking at that. Uh, so, so they change the algorithm so that you're more likely to see a picture of your ex looking happy so that you will look at it and they're more likely to serve you an ad. So that's because they're a for-profit company. So if, um, if the government takes over Facebook, which probably could never happen, then they could change it. So it's not, it's not like trying to manipulate manipulate you into just using it more and more and more. Right. Although that, yeah, but that wouldn't select for not using it for political activity, right? I mean, that would just sort of decrease its its sort of decrease its use in general. Um, but you know, I, I think that the fact that you know what you said about not learning from Covington, not learning that and that's, these things keep happening. It sort of shocked me that the Jesse Smollett thing happened so soon after the Covington. And it was like everybody just behaved exactly the same way again. Um, and um, and I, I think you're right that nobody's learned anything. And I almost wonder whether, you know, what we're really discovering is that social media really has has a much more profound and devastating impact than, than, than anybody really sort of realized. I mean, maybe it even 
is sort of magnifying the adolescent id and, and, think, yeah. and making it much, much harder to sublimate it in the ways that normally the entry into adult life would. I mean, that's part of what I tried to do in the essay. I said that, look, part of the way that you grow out, of the, that you sublimate the adolescent is, is that you increasingly find yourself in adult spaces in which it cannot be exercised, right? Um, but social media has made every space one in which it can be exercised. And, um, you know, this gets back to something that I've always wondered, and that is why we sort of allow the unleashing of these technologies that ha- can ha- are potentially have such a completely socially transforming effect without even having any sort of public conversation. I mean, I mean, it just – they just appeared and five minutes later, every 10-year-old had one and now we're here. And I, I guess I don't know what else you could do. I mean, you know, unless you sort of regulate every industry and – but it really is uh, – it's, kind of, it's pretty terrifying, I think. Um, and I think people really underest- are underestimating it, um, um, don't you? I mean – Yeah, and you know, there's, there's all sorts of crazy unintended consequences. Um, Zuckerberg founded Facebook to like look at hot girls essentially while he was at Harvard. The guys who founded Twitter, it was originally basically a way to um, uh, text message other people publicly. And it wasn't – you know, all, all, like – you know the the idea that that like creation, um, ten years later would like greatly help Donald Trump become president is, you know, no one could have predicted. Uh, yeah. Very very strange. Um, yeah. just, so just on the Jesse uh, Smollett thing. Um, so yeah, which is another like of these like very very stupid <laughs> episodes in which everyone leads uh, dumber than they were before. Um, I <laughs> like I didn't know who this. I never heard of this guy before because I don't watch the show he's on. Um, Neither did I. I never heard of him either. So yeah, he's like a minor, you know, not a super famous guy. And uh, and then when <laughs> I kept on seeing his name, I was like, what 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 happened here? And then I read the article of what uh, he said ha- happened to the, his alleged assault. Um, I I thought and then said to some people privately. There's no way this actually happened. Like, so it was so implausible, I couldn't believe that anybody bought into it, and yet there was this whole stampede to defend him. But and- but here but here's the thing: I only said that privately. I did not say it on my Twitter, which has a, a very small platform, but like enough that I felt that if I put this out there, like like people would uh, take pot shots at me, and I was like, I don't care enough about this to actually do anything. So the only people who you know, so the, I'm sure there were some from the beginning. There were some people who doubted him. And were vociferous about it, but the people who got all the attention and likes and retweets were the ones who were like, you know, gravest outrage of the millennium, and we have to stand up for Jesse, et cetera, et cetera. And now those people look foolish um, because uh, the, the if you weren't following the story, the the thing turned out to be a total hoax. That uh, right. that he. But could, the reason he you didn't tweet about it, think about it, right? The reason you didn't tweet about it was because you knew you were in your high school cafeteria that your right. friends were watching, right? And that you knew what they would do, and all the only people who were willing to tweet that were the other clique, who they would get kudos from their clique for 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 dumping on it, right? And in, in other words, I mean, it's 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 put all of us into this horrible, endless lunchtime, right? Yeah, and um, it's it's not yeah, but that's true. But it's even worse because. It's not only that, like, my friends could have, like, gone after me for it, my, my friends, my followers on Twitter, but also it would be, like, the kids at the other school across town could start going over against me. And, like, the, the city high school, because, like, it goes viral, and then people you've never heard of um, from all over the world are attacking you. And, yeah, so that's a bad, did any, did any of your Did any of your circle publicly 
expressed out about it? Yeah, I saw there were some people who I think uh, one was Robbie Suave, who I've had on this show before. He's not exactly in my circle. He's, he's a libertarian writer for uh, Reason Magazine. I think he was early on the case, kind of doubting this. Um, but I don't recall anyone being like very early on being like this sounds fishy or, or something like that. I think most people were like, it doesn't behoove me to <laughs> to weigh in on this because like it's it's pr- probably a lose lose. Um, I mean, yeah. and yeah, if, if someone was right, like if I had posted when I had my initial doubts, like three, three weeks ago, if I was like, I think this smells fishy guys. Um, and then it turns out I was right. It's not like I really would get any benefit from that, from that anyway. Yeah, there was also no benefit from being right. From yeah, yeah, being yeah. the first one to be right about it wouldn't have earned you anything. Right. I mean, so, yeah. so, um, 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 no, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, so what do you, so, so do you, you're pessimistic. <laughs> I guess so. I mean, I don't. Well, you know, I'm a liberal. Our politics is going to continue to be like this. What I think will be interesting is as people who grew up with this technology, like, become a voting age and start to enter politics themselves, like, what will happen? Uh, like, the way that the students at um, Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida started organizing um, after the mass shooting at their school. Uh, that gave me a sense of hope because, you know, um, when I was, you know, like school shootings kind of started around the time I was in middle school and high school and like it never would have even, um, we would have never even considered that we could have been the ones who were like starting a anti-gun movement. Like we would have been like, that's for the adults to do. So the fact that the, like the kids did it themselves and used their social media savvy um, is a heartening development. And yeah, I, so that, I guess that's, that's one thing to be optimistic about, but the um, social media companies continue to have the incentive to keep us uh, angry and shouting at each other all the time. And I don't, and I, you know, government, government intervention could solve that, but probably, I mean, isn't going to happen during the Trump administration and probably will, yeah. will never actually happen. And, and it seems to me that, that, that they're, they're, in full out PR, nothing to see here sort of mode. I mean, I don't know if you if you watched any of the or listened to any of the appearances that the CEO of Twitter did. He went on Joe Rogan. I think he was on Sam Harris, um, and they tried to push him on this, and he simply denied that um, that Twitter is manipulative in this way, right? I mean, he simply denied, and he did he denied that there are no platforming people on ideological grounds. He denied that sort of. Um, um, and, um, and I guess that just, um, I guess what I'd say is that we've given very people a very, very mediocre character and questionable intelligence other than in a very narrow area, tremendous control over public discourse. And I don't, I sort of don't know how we take it back at this point. I mean, it's sort of terrifying to me, at least. Um, yeah, I, um, I, I haven't seen those, but I've seen other things that uh, this guy, Jack Dorsey, the head of Twitter, has done. And I see his tweets sometimes. Uh, yeah, he does not seem like a very intelligent person. And he kind of seems like he, you know, is a mediocrity who lucked into this particular position and does not know how to <laughs> make, either doesn't know what the changes are that need to be made to his platform or doesn't want to make those changes for, for some strange reason. Um, I, guess and I guess those hearings on Capitol Hill came to sort of not also, right? I mean, they, they hauled these guys up and it really didn't. Yeah. I mean, I think they like, like Zuckerberg, it seems to me like a smarter person who 
kind of is strange and doesn't maybe understand human motivation in a lot of ways, even though he's created this uh, way to manipulate um, what humans want. Uh, maybe the most you know powerful single tool to for human uh, desire manipulation in human history. Um, and I don't know. I mean, uh, Facebook, like young people don't use Facebook anymore, really. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing your kids think Facebook is lame. No, my, da- my daughter is 17. And it's basically just Instagram for her. Right. But I have, to say that she, I have to say that, that she is very minimal in her social media because she does not like the kind of toxic infinite cafeteria kind of goings on. And so all she does is sort of post pictures. You know, like is basically all she does on it is like her friend's pictures. Yeah. She doesn't, she doesn't use it in her for socializing any substantial socializing because she sees how it is used for socializing um, um, and, and the way it's kind of become the, the mean girl platform. Um, mm-hmm. um, um. So I'm very fortunate in that regard because a lot of kids are really, are being really damaged by the sort of bullying that goes on in these platforms. But no, I mean, she doesn't use Facebook. She doesn't use Twitter. Um, that seems to be mostly adults using those platforms now. Right. And, um, I would, I would guess, um, you know, Facebook would rank the oldest, you know, there's grandparents who are on Facebook and know how to use it. And then like Twitter, Instagram, and then you get to like Snapchat and stuff, um, and newer ones. And yeah, I can't, you know, I was briefly on Snapchat, but it was kind of impenetrable to me. So I stopped using it. I'm sure it's, I'm too old for that. Is that the one where you put stuff up and it disappears after a certain period of time? Yes. Yeah, she's dabbled on that also, um, um, but very, 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 very mi- minorly, if that's the word. Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting. You can see it as a reaction to the, you know, the idea that if you say something online, it exists there forever, forever, which kind of sucks <laughs> when you really think about it. But um, the the like user interface is kind of con- confounding for for I don't know yeah. if you're if you're older than eighteen years old to figure out. Um, have you uh, have you heard of this movie Eighth Grade that came out last year? I thought it was magnificent. Oh, okay, I just I, yeah. I, I, I saw it. My wife, daughter, and I saw it. Yeah, I just I just I, saw it on DVD last night. Um, were you as impressed as I was? Yeah, I, I really liked it a lot. It's it's pretty remarkable. Um, uh, that girl should have won Best Actress. <laughs> I mean, her performance is ri- ridiculously good. I thought. Yeah. Um, so for anyone who hasn't heard of it, it's a in- independent film called Eighth Grade. Um, that's about a uh, thirteen or fourteen year old girl in her last week of eighth grade, and she's. She's always looking at her phone. She's very lonely. She doesn't have any friends. She's got like a YouTube program, right, where she gives right. advice. Right. Yeah. So she, yeah. yeah. So she has a YouTube channel, um, <laughs> you know, giving giving other kids advice, even though she can't really follow it and no one watches. Um, so yeah, it's it it's really good and it captures a, a lot about how young people are living their lives through um, Instagram and Facebook. Um, okay, do you want to talk about Joan Didion for a second before we? Before we wrap up, and yeah, no, sure, of course. Um, um, no, I just, you know, I don't know that there's that there's. I used her to illustrate um, some of the some of the central points that I made, and 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 so I, I'm just going to ver- read one of the quotes that I used. Um, um, she says, um, "This is what she says about about sort of moralizing politics, which is what I guess what we've been talking about." Um, she says questions of straightforward power or survival politics, questions of quite indifferent public policy, questions of almost anything are all assigned factitious moral burdens. There's something facile going on, some self-indulgence at work. Of course, we'd all like to believe in something, like to assuage our private guilt in public causes, 
like to lose our tires themselves, like to transform the white flag of defeated home into the brave white banner of battle away from home. And of course, it's all right to do that. But as long as we don't delude ourselves as, what we're, as to what we're doing and why. Um, and, um, and in one of the other essays, she simply says that she always thought that politics, that her generation was called silent because they always thought that politics was really about uh, trying to escape the personal. Um, and, um, and that just really resonated with me. Um, and, and, and I thought that I just saw a lot of the, what I, a lot of what I was seeing was what she was describing. People, in a sense, using the political arena to express all of their personal longings and failures, um, um, to, 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 to maybe win something where they've been losing something all this time. Um, and, um, and that it was all a way of trying to escape, uh, their own personal private lives. And, um, I guess that that really resonated with me and, and, and it, and it was, and it was in discovering her. It was in discovering her. I, I discovered, I rediscovered her not that long ago. Uh, actually once I was already working, I'd read her not liter- some of her novels much earlier, but I rediscovered her essays, uh, much more recently. And that was what really finally kind of made me realize that I was, on a political pendulum that really wasn't about the politics at all, that this back and forth from left to right that I probably did two or three times over the course of my life wasn't really about the politics at all. It was simply an expression of my personal, of, of what my personal life was. And I just thought there was a lot of wisdom in that. Um, um, and that, that's, that was one of the motive, one of the motivations for the essay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've, I've read, I guess I've, I've just read two of her essay collections, which so I've read, um, so Slouching Towards Bethlehem yeah. was the first. I've read Slouching Towards Bethlehem and the and White Album. And then the White Album was the second. Yeah. So are there other ones that you would, that you would recommend? Um, yeah. You know, I w- she's, she's, she's got one that was written during the, 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 from the Reagan era through the Gingrich Clinton era, uh, called Remembering Henry, um, which I would strongly recommend and which also will disabuse anyone who think, who wants to try and pretend that she's right wing, um, because, she is as brutal to uh, to Reagan um, as she was to the as she was to the hippies. I also really strongly recommend an essay that was published in the New York Times. Um, and if you just Google this, you'll find it. It's 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 available. A uh, 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 essay she wrote on the women's movement um, that 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 permanently alienated her from uh, second wave feminists who had been trying to adopt her. Because her book, her novel, Play It As It Lays, I don't know if you've read that novel. No, I haven't read her novel. Her novel, Play It As It Lays, is, was widely viewed as, as, as a major feminist novel. And, um, and then she wrote this essay in the women's movement that really made the feminists very angry. <laughs> and I think it was decades. I think the National Organization of Women, like, officially denounced her or whatever. And, and, um, but I always just viewed her as, as a very, as, as a fundamentally apolitical, uh, person. Um, in a way that her companions in the new journalism were not, because she's one of the the new journalists. Her, Tom Wolfe, um, Hunter S. Thompson, they, the others are all very clearly political um, and, and, and are on a side, right? Um, but Joan Didion, I don't think, is on a side. I think her side is that is 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 that the personal should take priority over the political, uh, and that and that that the political too often is a sort of masked expression of the personal um so uh, i actually adore her i did a dialogue with bob about her 
and uh, I highly recommend her to everyone, both her her novels and her uh, her essays. Yeah, I enjoyed the um, the uh, ones I read, and especially I think I liked um, slashing towards Bethlehem more. Um, but the the I mean, everyone's heard of that in the title essay that is really famous. Um, but um, yeah, okay, double recommendation for Joan Didion's uh, still with us. She must be like eighty. She's very old, and I think Obama gave her like a one of the one of the most prestigious awards. This I, I can see in my head. She's a tiny little woman. She also suffered tremendous tragedy. Right. Both her husband and her daughter died pretty close to each other, and she wrote books about them that are very very powerful books about bereavement. One's called the most impressive one was called The Year of Magical Thinking, which I also highly recommend. Um, um, uh, the funny thing is, and, and I know that we're getting long, so this is the last thing I'll say. Um, when you watch interview, you will not be impressed if you watch interviews with her. She's actually remarkably inarticulate. Hmm. Um, um, but in my view, she is one of the best American stylists of the 20th century. Um, um, her writing is sublime. She can do more with less than anybody and a person who was directly influenced by her and who who voices it whenever he's asked uh, was Brett Easton Ellis. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Less Than Zero was was very much patterned after play as it lays and um, and Didion uh, appreciated the, the the homage and actually one of her collections is devote is dedicated to Brett Easton Ellis. So uh, um, and more of that silent generation Gen X sort of connection, I guess. Yeah, right. Um, um, so anyway, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, do you have anything else or should we, should we, we're no, about an hour. So what, maybe we should wrap I it think up. We did, I think we covered everything and, um, and I appreciate, uh, I appreciate getting to talk to you with you, with you about it. Uh, well, uh, thanks Dan for coming back on culturally determined as well. Um, so electric Agora is where the article is. The link will be below on the blogging's website. Um, and uh, you are not on Twitter wisely. You are not on Twitter. <laughs> well, Electric Agora is on Twitter. Oh, okay. Um, um, because that you know, I do promote. I do promote my essays there. You know, Electric Agora has a has a Facebook and a Twitter page, which basically I use simply to announce the latest publications. Um, um, I don't use it for much more than that. I've been using Twitter a little bit more recently but only with regard to things that i've published um i've been having a few conversations about the things that i've published with people um but uh for the most part i have stayed away from it um what do you i'm just curious i i we you don't use we don't usually do what's up and coming but i think we should i mean what do you have do you have anything in the in the work what 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 are some of the culturally determined shows that are going to be coming actually um the one I only have one other one booked, and it is with the well. Uh, hopefully, it happens. <laughs> We're gonna tape it next week. It's with the director of one of the Oscar-nominated documentary shorts. Um, ah, cool! Called "A Night at the Garden." Have you heard of this? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, sure. So yeah, so that um, his name is escaping me right now, but uh, hopefully that will. Uh, come together next week and probably be posted fairly soon. Uh, and that's all I have. I, I, I've been a little off my game um, and need to uh, put more things on the schedule. Uh, but so, what, what about you? What do you, do you have anything coming up? Well, y- you know, I um, I normally try to have several sort of piled up ahead, but personal things. I've you know, my my parents are very old, and my father actually is kind of ill. And so I've got to go back to New York next weekend. And um, um, so that's been kind of distracting. 
Um, and so uh, I don't really have something specific on deck right now. I also, Massimo and I have a book that's coming out this year. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't know that. On Penguin Harper, on Penguin Random House, um, it's called How to Give a Live a Good Life. Massimo, me, and, and this, uh, other, uh, professor, uh, uh, philosopher, Sky Cleary, um, have a, this book coming out. And, um, is it the Aus- Australian, um, yes, woman? yes. Okay, yeah. actually, I remember that she was on the website, yeah. Yeah, there, there was a dialogue that Massimo did with her that I, uh, moderated as an invisible moderator. Right. So that's coming out and that's really ramped up. Um, for those who who don't know how this goes, um, publishing with a major publisher is a uh, learning experience. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Um, in terms of the amount, the sheer amount, and I'm putting this in scare quotes because I don't mean to say it pejoratively, but of interference on the part of the editors. In other words, you know, they will come back with an edit. Where basically the whole fucking thing is underlined, right? I mean, it, I mean, it just the, the rewrite process. It's nothing like academic publishing. Huh. In academic publishing, you once you get once you make the pitch and they sort of accept it, it goes through the sort of refereeing process. It pretty much, you, you know, you write the thing and it pretty much goes out the way you do it. It's not like this. I mean, I would, I would, I would say safely that editors are essentially invisible authors. Huh. On trade books, mm-hmm. I mean the amount of input, that, and you have to make. It's not like it's it's not a suggestion. Right? <laughs> um, um, when the editor at Random House uh, Penguin says, you know, this 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 and this and this and this, those are all things you have to do. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, maybe unless you're such a huge quantity that you can push back, but I'm certainly not. And I guess Massimo, who's more of a quantity, isn't quite yet. But yeah, it's been a learning experience. Um, and uh, those editors really are like invisible authors. Um, um, and so that's also just been consuming a tremendous amount of time. And we're also doing hires. We're doing a hire at Missouri State right now. So I don't have anything on deck, but uh, I will. I will. I will shortly. Okay, cool. So I look forward to yours. That sounds really interesting. Uh, yeah, thanks. So what is, the, what is the title of the book again? Uh, it's going to be – it's called uh, how, to, how, to, how to Live a Good Life. And then it's got a sub – we're still wrangling over the sub – Title. They all want subtitles now. I don't know why yeah. exactly, but yeah, all, all not. Yeah, pretty much every nonfiction book has a subtitle. We're still wrangling over it, and and the the, the differences between the proposed ones are so minor that I can't understand how we're wrangling over them. But still, we are. So, <laughs> so okay. Well, we'll. It. I'm sure you'll discuss that more on uh, TV <laughs> on your show. Once it comes so, so out, cool. we'll do something on it. You yeah. know what I mean. Okay, cool. So uh, thanks, Dan. Um, Thanks to our viewers and our listeners. um, And we'll see you again next time. Thanks a lot, Aria. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Blogging Heads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.